Hey, everybody, you are listening to the Accelerate Performance Lab podcast, hosted by Accelerate's Director of Experimental Science and Social Media Manager, Riley Witt. You are about to hear from some of the world's leading experts in sports performance and human optimization. From elite scientists to world-class coaches, this is the place to be to accelerate your performance. So, as always, sit back, buckle up, enjoy the ride. Here we go. As most of you may know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And some of my favorite episodes in the few people I listen to are their question and answer podcasts, where like listeners get to submit questions and the host sits down and reads them and then gives them the best answer that they can come up with. So I figured that would be kind of fun to do for this week's episode. So on Tuesday or Monday, I don't really remember, I put something on Instagram asking for some questions. And you guys answered. I got quite a few questions. Some of them were kind of bad. Some of them, come on guys, you didn't really formulate much of a question. But then there were some other ones that were really good. So we'll pick and choose the ones we want because we definitely will not get to all the questions that were submitted. But if you have questions for a future episode, if this episode does well and you guys enjoy it, make sure to go over to Instagram, drop a follow so you won't miss those. And if you have a question that you want answered right away, Just send us a direct message and we can help you out that way. But without further ado, let's jump into some of these questions. I split the categories up into three sections, the first being training, the second about nutrition, and then I just put a random one about anything else that you might have a question about. So the first one is from Warren Malone. Please forgive me if I get names wrong, but I'll do my best. Lauren asks, should we train every day even when you're sore? So good question, Lauren. I think soreness is kind of a primitive way at looking at readiness. A better you know, readiness score would be looking at heart rate variability. And that's the best measure we have right now, looking at nervous system strain and nervous system recovery. So if you were to get pretty cheap $50 heart rate monitor, it's got to be a chest strap because it has to be accurate. And you can download a free app that'll measure heart rate variability. If you track that every morning when you wake up, you can see a pattern. The lower your heart rate variability when you wake up is going to correlate with a less recovered central nervous system. So you'll see after a hard workout day that your central nervous system or your heart rate variability will be lower than normal then we can see that you're just not quite ready for another hard workout yet. If it drops, you know, maybe 10% below baseline, maybe you should take another easy day. An easy, simple way to do this if you don't want to just measure it every morning, which that's pretty simple, uh, is getting a device like a Whoop or an Aura Ring. They all track heart rate variability. I think your watch does it, but you need like a Garmin, but you need a heart rate strap to do so. So should you train every day? It depends what you mean by train. I run pretty much every day and I'd say, I would say most elite athletes run pretty much every day. Do they work out every day? No. So I don't know what you mean by train. Soreness, I guess could be a decently good proxy. And if you don't want to mess around with heart rate variability, I guess you could go off of soreness. You probably shouldn't be too sore after runs unless you're just starting out running. I rarely get sore after a run unless it's like some new workout or hard creatine phosphate workout or something like that. But should you train every day? Yeah, you could run every day, maybe take one or two days off a week, depending on your level. 
and then go from there. Good question though, Lauren. Next one from Jared Miles. Um, lift in the morning and run in the evening or run in the morning and lift in the evening. There's actually some evidence in a paper done that was looking at this very question and I can't seem to find it, but if I can, I will put it in the show notes if you're interested in reading it. But it essentially, without boring you guys, it pointed towards zone two cardio is most effective in the morning while heavy, harder workout strength type work is better for the afternoon. And the primary factor that went into that was body temperature. So your body temperature peaks at around 2 to 4 p.m. in the evening and then slowly drops after that and then slowly rises all morning up until that time. So body temperature is a good way, again, to depict your readiness for a workout. If you look at the slope of like when all of the world records have happened in like endurance and power sports, it's around 2 to 4 p.m. is like the majority of the time that world records happen. And that's mainly due again to the temperature rising effect. So if you have a big like speed type workout, I would do that in the afternoon just because running is our sport and that's kind of our primary focus. So it's less of a deal to, you know, lift in the morning or something. Or you could do them both in the afternoon and just run beforehand. So that's your primary stimulus and then you lift afterwards. That's what we do here at Northwest. Will Thompson says, is heavy training for upper body not optimal in season due to weight gain? So, Will, good question. I don't think you'd gain any weight if you're not in a calorie surplus. You can lift all the weight you want and you can get stronger due to a stronger like mind-muscle connection and a better central nervous system firing. So you can get stronger without gaining weight upper body. It's just like, What's your time worth? Why are you trying to bicep curl or why are you trying to PR in the bench press if you're trying to run, you know, a four minute mile or something? The correlation there is not so strong. So yes, you're right. It's not optimal in season, not necessarily due to the weight gain. I mean, it definitely wouldn't be optimal if you are gaining weight, but you're just putting more tax on your nervous system, which you can think of it as a battery. It's not infinite. You only have so much of it that you can spend. So you might as well spend it on a run or a hard workout instead of upper body lifting. So I don't think it's really optimal to do at any time unless you're a power like 800 runner or lower. Then you need some of that arm swing momentum to get you going. But again, that doesn't have to come along with weight gain. Audra Maholland asks, what is the best form of cross training for an injured runner? I like this question because there's, I got a little flack actually from saying, either an Instagram reel or one of the podcasts. I don't really remember when I said this, but I talked about how swimming might not be the best form of cross training due to its anaerobic stimulating effect. Because when you're swimming, you're only able to breathe like every couple seconds. So it's clearly more of an anaerobic event than let's say biking or elliptical or even like cross country skiing or something. So because it's more anaerobic, because you're not able to breathe all the time, you're stimulating more of that glycolytic system and boosting that lactate production, which isn't always a bad thing. But for most high school runners, especially distance high school runners, that's probably not the best way of doing it. But 
Not to say swimming's not good. Swimming is great if you're doing it right. If you're not going crazy hard in the pool and you're keeping it more so zone two. It's also a great way if you're injured to burn a lot of calorie because of thermal effect of water. But in regards to what the best form is, you know, swimming is pretty good. But Parker Valby, I'm sure you guys know who that is, the Division One national champ for girls. She claims that she only runs around 30 miles a week, running three times a week. And the rest of the day, she does the arc trainer, which is basically just an elliptical. I do like that form of cross training just because it's so similar to our running motion. So in my opinion, the best form of cross training is the closest thing to running. Are we trying to get better at biking? Are we trying to get better at swimming? No, we get the heart rate effect. So we're getting a better cardiovascular system, but why not get the cardiovascular stimulus with a stimulus that's also very similar to our running motion, like an elliptical. So in my opinion, elliptical, arc trainer, spark trainer, those type of things that are the same motion as running, just less impact, is probably the best way to cross train when you're injured. Addison Yates asks, how to mentally deal with hard workouts when it does not feel good? Ooh, I'm not a psychologist. This might be out of my route. In my opinion, I don't think you should be doing too many hyper-stimulating, mentally difficult workouts for the majority of the time. Sure, there's a time and a place for them, but I don't think many of your workouts should be crazy hard where you're having to mentally deal with them. I think that should come down to races. Again, I'm not a psychologist, but my take on this is your mental side isn't just in the workout. It's what you do before the workout and after the workout, but mostly before the workout to make that workout hard or easy. Our mental currency that determines our level of effort, motivation, and drive is a molecule that I talk about a lot because I listen to way too many Andrew Huberman podcasts. It's dopamine. So if you're having issues with motivation and drive during mentally difficult workouts, you should probably look into modulating this molecule. I could spend three hours talking about this, but to give you a little bit of a synopsis, you want to regulate dopamine or minimize it as much as possible before the workout so you can use it up until the workout. Dopamine is a non-infinite but rechargeable molecule. So if you use it before the workout, you're going to be a little bit deficient in it when it comes to the workout. So you need to be doing things before the workout that aren't too stimulating to this neurotransmitter. What do I mean by that? Well, to the greatest extreme, one of my teammates, he likes to think he's hardcore, but he doesn't actually do this. He says he basically just stares at a wall before the workouts because it's not stimulating to this neurotransmitter at all, which I think we can kind of glean some understanding from that. Whenever we scroll through Instagram, throw a scroll through TikTok, watch TV, play video games, eat delicious food, we're all getting a hit of this neurotransmitter. And when we get a hit of this neurotransmitter that goes well above baseline, that's followed by a steep crash and dip below baseline, which leads to lower motivation, drive, and willingness to push in a workout. So if you keep the stimulus low before the workout, your baseline is going to be untouched and you're going to have a better time pushing in a workout. There are also other ways to artificially boost dopamine, but this needs to be handled with care and only done for specific workouts because you don't want to exhaust the system. The most common way of doing this is taking a caffeine supplement before a workout to both boost dopamine and keep dopamine at the synapse longer, which makes the workout feel easier. 
It's also said that Stanford is incorporating some ice baths before their workouts to have this similar effect that's more natural. It's said they'll plunge into an ice bath for not much longer than a couple minutes, so they don't have the, the muscle cooling effect, but they do have the shock to the system to boost dopamine for up to 90 minutes into the workout. So if you're having a hard time pushing through a workout, give you a little bit of a synopsis here. One, abstain from you know TikTok or social media for the workout. Maybe take some caffeine, and if you're really feeling up to it, take a cold shower for a minute, 30 seconds, or whatever, or jump in an ice bath. It'll shock the system and get you ready for it. Joe Anderson, pros and cons of doing lactate tests on your own versus in the lab. I actually responded to this question on our story, so let me pull it up here just so I am not contradicting myself. So on your own lactate tests, I have a monitor here at my place too. And I'll sometimes take samples during your workouts and stuff. But on your own lactate test, you can do a step test and easily find your lactate threshold, which is cool. Like it's a great way of doing it yourself. If you want to spend the 350 bucks on a test and $2 per strip, like it's not cheap, but once you have it, it's doable. But on your own lactate test, you can simply get your lactate threshold, but it's honestly not as accurate as you might think. To get it, you do a step test and you measure you know, the different levels, and then you draw the slope, and then you kind of just guess where your threshold is. You kind of just like see the slope, and because you don't have too many points, it's not a very accurate slope, and then you just point a line where you think it is. But it stops there. With the test we do with inside, we get all those measures and a few other measures, and then we calculate fat max, carb max, max combustion rate, one of the most accurate measures of VLA max, And then we can also estimate precise amounts of lactate for each duration you do in a workout. Plus time, it probably will require you at certain paces to combust that lactate so you're fresh for the next workout or rep. So pros and cons, I mean, at your own test is simple. You can do it in just an hour or so, and you can get a somewhat accurate measure of your threshold, but that's about it. So that's the only pro, and then the rest is all cons. We can get it done for you and get you a bunch of more metrics for that. But good question, Joe. Last one, I'm going to touch on training and then we'll move to nutrition. Tommy Hensley asks, what's the best plyometric exercise for running strength? Okay, I'm definitely not an expert when it comes to plyometrics. I haven't done a ton of them in my life. But in my opinion, plyometrics should be focused on tendon elasticity and strength and not so much muscular strength. If you want to work on muscular strength, get to the weight room, do some squats or lunges, calf raises, that type of stuff. So I think squat jumps is kind of pointless for plyos. Like, why are we squatting? Let's just do that in the weight room. Plyos is its own separate thing for tendons. Also, box jumps where you just jump up and then you just step down is kind of a waste. I mean, sure, there's some explosive properties of jumping up, But I think a proper plyometric exercise should be jumping up and then jumping down with a spring. So it's super quick. You're working on the nervous system and the connection there to the muscle, but also some deceleration in the tendon when you're jumping down. So I don't really have a good answer for you, Tommy, but something that's more focusing on quick movements with a jump up and a jump down, or I guess side to side as well. Okay, now to nutrition. These questions were a little less formulated than the last one, so I will only pick the ones I think that are good enough. 
Will Thompson again with a good question. He asked, how severe of a caloric surplus should I maintain throughout the season, if at all? Well, I mean, if you're trying to gain weight, which I'm not sure why you want to be doing, unless you have some eating disorder or you think you're injury prone. I mean, if you're trying to gain weight, the general guidelines are one to two pounds a week. I can't imagine that's your goal. I don't think you should really be having much of a surplus when you're running, but it is an interesting concept. There's a concept called NEAT, which is stands for non-exercise active thermogenesis, I believe. And with active people, and I guess non-active people, we can get away with up to a 500 calorie surplus per day and still not gain any weight. You're like, wait, how's that work? That defies calories in versus calories out. But our body is a pretty smart and fine-tuned system. So if we take in more calories than we need, and not a crazy amount, but up to 500, which is a chunk, our body will recognize this. And because we're running or because we're doing some activity, our body wants to stay as efficient as possible in that activity. And we know the added weight is probably not going to be very beneficial. So our body will actually start to move around itself unconsciously to burn that calories. The muscle that, that burns the most calories because of this effect is the muscle that's underneath the calf. If you've ever noticed your leg twitching up and down, that's mainly due to this non-exercise active thermogenesis concept. If you're eating more calories than you actually need, your body's going to start to burn that. And it does that by moving and twitching. So, Will, good question. And originally I was like, uh, I don't think we should have much of a surplus, but I think we can get away with around 300 to 500 calorie surplus a day to make sure we have the energy we need because our body is going to get rid of it. But I think you should probably keep track to make sure you're not just getting fat because that's not really something we want when we're trying to run fast. Marissa Fairby asks, when and what to eat after you work out or run? So immediately what comes to mind when you think of eating after the workout is probably that 30-minute anabolic window that you need to be getting your 3 to 1 ratio of protein to carbs. Most gym goers or workout enthusiasts know this rule. So they've got some artificially sweetened protein bar or whatever in their backpack, which is true to a certain extent. But the study that proved this was actually sponsored by Gatorade Sports Medicine. And, you know, whenever something's sponsored by Gatorade, not that they don't have good scientists, but a lot of it's a little bit biased because, I mean, what's the easiest thing to suck down after a workout is probably, you know, a Gatorade protein shake or Gatorade bar or whatever. So they're making a lot of money from that study. So I'm in the camp that it really is less important to get the food in within that 30-minute anabolic window as long as that's the only workout you have for the day. There is some serious evidence outside of that study that points towards that 30-minute window being important if you have a workout in the next eight hours. So let's say you're doing a double threshold session. Yes, you should probably get in three to one ratio of carbs and protein 30 minutes after your workout so you're ready and refueled for that workout eight hours later. Mainly do to your muscles are more primed to absorb carbohydrates after they've just been used. But if you don't have a workout right afterwards, don't worry about it. Just go home and eat a good meal. And I guess 
in terms of what to eat, like I said, three to one ratio of carbs to protein is a pretty good bet. I think protein, honestly, after a workout is probably overstressed. All the gym goers and meatheads say you need to get your protein in afterwards because your body's in a more of a catabolic state. So it's going to find protein wherever it can. So you should give it protein instead of it breaking down your muscle. But that's not true. After a workout, mTOR is activated and you have a big spike in growth hormone. So you're pretty anabolic at that point and you don't have to worry about your body eating its own muscle after you work out. So you, protein is less important, but if you're going to get it in at some point, it's not a bad idea just to do it right after your workout. Ava Jane had a couple questions that I do want to skip over. One of them was, what's your favorite healthy meal? And the other one was, what's your favorite healthy snack? So pretty general questions there. If you're just asking me before workout in Maryville, just because it's easy, I'll just eat some fermented rice, which I wouldn't even really call it fermented, and ground beef. And then I'll have some fruit a couple hours before the workout, bananas or, or apples. To get rid of some of the lectins in rice, I'll rinse it in water a couple times and then leave it sitting in water in my fridge for 48 hours. And then that said, to get rid of some of them, I don't know if it's actually true, but it's not really any extra work. So I'll do that and then cook the rice. So it's just rice, ground beef, and some fruit before the workout. So favorite healthy meal is that and snack, fruit, sourdough bread, something like that. Okay, last question I'm going to hit on nutrition is how should I be eating in the off season? by Aubrey Rivers, I think. Yes. In the off season, well, as runners, we don't get much of an off season. In high school, I had two weeks after track and two weeks after cross. So there's not too much of a off season. So honestly, if you're just taking that much time off, eat whatever, unless you're like a hyper elite athlete, it makes no difference. But for someone who is injured, or just takes more time off in the off season, I would say a lower carbohydrate, higher protein, higher fat diet. When you're a distance runner, we eat a lot of carbohydrates, which means we're probably getting less healthy fats than we probably should, leading us to poor hormonal function. If you look at Ryan Hall, he was a super elite marathon runner, basically all carbohydrates and some protein, no fat for extended period of time. He had testosterone levels of an eight-year-old boy and was just super unhealthy. There's many, many examples of that. So if you're going to take extended periods of time off or even in the off season, it could be higher fat, higher protein and less carbohydrates. And then once you're getting into the competition season to switch that back around and eat more carbs. Okay. I'll leave you with this last question. I think this was also from Ava Chang. Best advice for runners with big goals. This was on the other section. Best advice, find a training plan that you, number one, enjoy, number two, can stay consistent with, and number three, that you trust and can execute each day to the fullest extent. So big plug to accelerate. If you don't have a training plan that you enjoy, can follow consistently, or that you trust, hop on. Winter training is the best time to make this happen to achieve your goals this coming track season. So I hope this helped. I really enjoyed answering some of your questions. I didn't get to quite all of them, but I don't want to make this episode too long. If you guys have any more questions, I will definitely post another poll asking for them or just send them to me in the direct message section. 
If you guys got something out of this episode, make sure to leave a review on iTunes or Spotify and send this episode to a friend that it might help. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again next week on the Accelerate Performance Lab podcast. Thank you.